Welcome to the Harvest House Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information, you can find us at harvesthouse.live. Station where a traitorous Jew, isn't that interesting? 
term. There's a lot of uh, there's a lot of claims about Jews for the IRS, but if traitor is Jew, uh, is not really something I've used. Maybe that'll be it. I, I, I don't know what I've used better than that, but uh, but traitor is Jew is busy at his work collecting taxes for the Romans. And in Matthew, come follow me, Jesus said to him. Immediately, Matthew jumped up and began following Jesus. So we understand this guy's at work. Jesus walks in, food that he's never seen, says, come follow me, and Matthew says, deuces, and walks out on his job to go follow this guy who's teaching. God give us that kind of humility. Later, Jesus went to Matthew's home to share a meal with him. Many other tax collectors and outcasts of the society were invited to eat with Jesus and his disciples. I love that. Jesus immediately, as soon as he gets into public ministry, the people he starts inviting to the table, first of all, are the outcasts of all aspects of the society. He invites, uh, we know, and we've read before, he always was hanging out with sinners and he was hanging out with people that were the also ones of society. We know that. Here's the thing we haven't often thought about. Do you realize that Jesus throws a banquet with tax collectors who were the most hated people of all the Jewish people. Furthermore, he invites to this dinner the rest of his disciples who were anarchists trying to overthrow the Roman government. There was nobody else in the world, of, uh, more so than even the Romans, that the those that were what, what you would call Jewish, the nationalists. So... I was going to give some examples of who that could be compared to in our country, but that's probably just walking down the rabbit trail. I don't need to go down. But you've heard of people that, that are the, the freedom fighters, the people that, that, that feel like that they're, you know, they're piling away weapons because the government's going to take over at any point and they're going to have to fight against the government. And they've got guns and they've got bombs and they've got, you know, I don't know, minute rocks. Uh, and so uh, that kind of stuff, those guys are what the disciples were. They were actively plotting to overthrow the Roman government on a daily basis. If you can imagine, the only people they would hate more than the Romans are their own kinsmen who were working with the Romans to hurt them. That's what Matthew was. So the Romans would actually go in and co-opt Jews to work on their behalf to collect taxes and the reason they would do it is because they would get filthy rich. So this is like, it, this would literally be like in Nazi Germany, early Nazi Germany, uh, um, the Jews or, or the German people that sold out Jews to the Nazis for money. It is like the worst of the worst in the eyes of the Jews. And specifically in the eyes of, of those that are trying to fight against Roman oppression. Guess what most of Jesus' disciples were? Jewish nationalists. Peter, John, Mark, all these guys that ran with Jesus. You even see this with, um, with Nathaniel. You see this with Philip. These guys were actively engaged in trying to overthrow the Romans. So at Jesus' table, 
behind groups of people who violently hate one another. That's who Jesus marks down. That should tell us something about the lines that Jesus didn't care about. Jesus was so engaged in offending people that he invited people that hated one another to walk with him just so they would have to get offended enough to get past what it was that kept them separate. That's just the way it worked. And he regularly would do things like that. The only people that Jesus didn't invite to his table were religious leaders. Why? Because we'll talk about that in a minute, but the religious leaders all felt like they had ownership rights to the Messiah. They had ownership rights to the promise of God. And so Jesus didn't invite the people that felt like they had the corner on the market of what God was wanting to do when he brought the kingdom. But he invited everybody else specifically. I love that he would just say, hey, why don't you come hang out? And it would be like, it would, I, I can't even give it a ridiculous enough example in our current culture of what this would be like. I, I really can't think of one. And he would say, because they're the ones who were bad people. It wasn't, I mean, well, they were kind of bad people. But it wasn't like they were, it wouldn't be like having, um, I don't know, the leader of Black Lives Matter and the KKK. Um, you know, that's not, that's not a, a, a fair example. But it, it would be like saying, that you're going to have these people and you're going to say, look, we're creating a society that exists outside of what culture tells you you have to draw the lines for. And he literally does that. So the first thing he does is he goes and sits down with the tax collectors and the society or outcasts of society with those that didn't have a place. And when those known as the Pharisees saw what was happening, they become indignant. And they asked Jesus' disciples, why would your master dine with such lowlifes? You want to know why Jesus didn't bask in the Pharisees' opinion of his actions? Very easy. Why would Jesus dine with such lowlifes? When Jesus heard this, he spoke up and said, healthy people don't need to see a doctor, but the sick will go for treatment. See, I've always read that a different way. I, I like um, Dr. Simmons' translation there because healthy people don't need a doctor, but the sick will go for treatment. The reason I like that translation is because I've always said uh, you don't send a doctor to the well, but you send a doctor to those that are sick. What Jesus said is, no, the sick will be humble enough to come knowing they could be made well. So the onus of coming then relies upon hunger and humility. It's not about a doctor walking through and just miraculously making everybody well, as much as it is putting the onus back on the Pharisees. When you think you're healthy, you're not going to go to the doctor. But if you think you're sick and there's a doctor who can make you well, you'll come. That's what he says to the Pharisees. Then he added, you need to go study the passage. And the meaning of the verse that says, I want you to show mercy, not just offer me a sacrifice. And now that's the passage, if you remember. Yeah, you see how that went down? Good, good. Because that verse is the Old Testament verse that says, don't you know that I prefer obedience over sacrifice? Remember that when he's talking to Samuel or Samuel's talking to Saul? I love the translation of this because this that translation is a little confusing. I don't know, maybe not me. I'm not as smart as Samuel. So it confused me because 
isn't obedient sacrifice. Obedience that isn't sacrificial is, is usually a lower bar of what he intends. If I desire obedience over sacrifice, there's a lot of verses where he says to sacrifice. So it's kind of confusing. Isn't, and isn't giving a sacrifice being obedient? So I always got confused about that. I love this passage because what it, it, this translation of it, because what it says, I want you to show mercy, not just offer me a sacrifice. Why? Because God is not in need of our mercy, but those who we consider lesser than us are. I want you to show mercy, not just give me a sacrifice, meaning anybody can come to God and be obedient to sacrifice a sheep or a, uh, a goat or a dove or a whatever they afforded at that point. Anybody can do that. But to extend mercy to somebody who is different than you are and lesser than you are and can do nothing for you, that is the very nature of God being hospitable. Showing mercy is better than sacrifice is a different way of saying your church attendance doesn't matter if you don't care for the needs of your church. That's essentially what that's saying. For I have come to invite the outcasts of society and sinners, not those who think they're already on the right path. And the disciples of John the Baptist approached Jesus with this question. Why is it that he and the Pharisees fast regularly? Or why is it the Pharisees and you fast regularly but not your disciples? And Jesus replied, how can the sons of the bridal chamber grieve when the bridegroom is with them? But the days of fasting will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and who would mend worn-out clothing with new fabric? When the new cloth drinks, it will rip, making a hole worse than before. And who will pour fresh new wine into an old wineskin? Eventually the wine will ferment, and the wineskin will burst, leaving everything. The wine is spilled, and the wine cannot be drunk. Instead, new wine, which is going to be used, I, I don't know about you, but when I read that, my spirit droops over the wine cup. Um, that's a joke. The wine is spilled, the wineskin is ruined. Instead, new wine is always poured into a new wineskin so that both are preserved. So, I've heard this passage many times. I've taught this passage many times. I've never really taught the context, though, in this uh, gospel because um, we know that the way this is supposed to work is many of us have been taught that God is always wanting to do a new thing. The problem is what we've said before, and this is true, is that God wants to do a new thing and that the preceding element is always going to be a new wineskin that precedes new wine. What that means is the package has to, the setting, the stage, as the title suggests, needs to be set. There has to be an atmosphere that's conducive because God is not wasteful and God is not going to continue to pour out new wine and pour out new wine and pour out new wine in a setting or an atmosphere that is rejecting it because it, if it refuses to host new wineskins so that that wine is not lost. We can't take the new thing that God's doing, package it in the old trappings, and expect that it's going to remain. It's just that simple. It's got to, and this is what the Pharisees, he's talking to the Pharisees, because that's exactly what the Pharisees were doing. They wanted this Messiah to come that was going to re uh, cause them to ascend to power again and make Jerusalem the, the, the headquarters of the world and make Israel the world power that could rule all again. And Jesus said, that's not what I'm here to do. God did that before where Israel was a world power. That's not what I'm here for. 
And what they had an issue with was not that there was a Messiah on the scene. It was that the Messiah wasn't doing what they thought the Messiah should be doing and didn't look like he looked. It's just the reality. And so the context to these two blind men immediately preceding that is this business about new wine and wineskins. And when you're talking about sight, these blind men, you're always talking about perspective. So that will kind of set the stage for where we're going to go. So looking back at the first uh, passage we, we examined in Matthew chapter 9, the first thing that stands out that we have to, to think about is this statement that Jesus tells them in verse 29. You will have what your faith expects. So the inverse could be said, you will not have what your faith does not expect. The principle of inverse reality, which is a part of the law of reciprocity, says if truth is true, it survives inversion. If something is true, it should survive the inversion of that also being true. That's why oftentimes doctrines fall short when we say things like God loves Christians because what that means is the inversion of that is what? God hates sinners. If the, if the statement, though, is truth is God is love, that survives inversion about who he is and how broadly it can be applied. God blesses you if you serve him. That's true. But does it mean that he curses you if you don't? You see where I'm going with that? Anything in the scripture that you look at, the, the, the spirit of, actually the Bible says the spirit gives life. The inversion of that is true, but death is found in the law. I mean, there is that inversion. That is what one of the principles of the law of reciprocity is the, the, this isn't something I made up. This is something that much smarter theologians than I could ever pretend to be came up with is this uh, inverse reality. So if it's true, it survives inversion. So what that means is if you will have what your faith expects, that means you won't have what your faith doesn't expect. So when you look at what Jesus says to them, that's the thing that precedes them being healed. First of all, is that he looks at them and he says, okay, do you believe that this can happen? They said, yes, Lord. And because of that, he says, okay, you're going to get exactly what your faith expects. So the, the, one of the things that I'm a little bit messed up about is I'm considering this is how much of what I have of him is dependent upon me. Now, I don't have an answer to that question because it messes with me. It messes with me. How much of me being willing to believe in faith and to stand and to grow and to get better and better and better and better at, at, at what God's called me to be is dependent. I mean, you do realize that the Bible says first that Jesus is the light of the world. And then Jesus says, you are the light of the world. the church is now, you're getting large sections of the church that are actually starting to believe in healing. Pretty soon, maybe they'll start healing people. Like, we're getting to the point where now people actually believe God can heal people. Like, we're actually getting there. 
pretty soon they will actually do something. And people say, well, you shouldn't be saying that we are going to heal anybody. Uh, of course it's not us. And I understand that. And it would have made it a lot simpler if in the Bible God would have said that. But he doesn't. He says you do it. Whatever sin you remit will be remitted. Whatever sin you retain will be retained. It says when you lay hands on people, they will be healed. Of course, we know all that power comes from him. But the reality is there's always going to be an onus of responsibility upon ourselves. And I ha we have to understand that there's no room for condemnation or shame when it doesn't work out like we would hope, of course. Um, but I genuinely believe that the responsibility that we have is exactly what Jesus said there. How do we continue to come before him when we have encountered loss and we have encountered challenge and we have encountered um, some measure of disappointment and say, but Father, that doesn't change who you are. Help me to be more like who you are. Because his line doesn't change. And so we will have what our faith expects. I'm just trying to get to a better point where my faith expects something different. So the first point we need to see in this story is just glaringly obvious, maybe you've already noticed it. Verse 27, two blind men followed him after he left the house. Followed him all the way to another house. How did two blind people follow anything? I don't know if this makes logical sense to you, but to me, two blind people, first of all, how did they even see him? Does it say that anybody alerted them that Jesus was there? Second of all, I'm assuming if Jesus is, if it's anything else like a marketplace that you would see at that time, it's not something that, uh, if you've ever been, uh, seen pictures of Europe, I mean, it's not like green cafes. You've got these, they're very elaborate, like corners and alleys and things, and these two blind guys are following Jesus? This doesn't make any, this makes zero sense. So the first point that we have to make is something that I think is a challenge, I know for me, is what does this tell us about Jesus? Before we talk about what it tells us about the blind people, what does it tell us about Jesus? There was something about him that gave these men the capacity to continue pursuit even absent of natural sight. What was it about the aura of Jesus that allowed even blind men to effectively follow him in that way? What was it about Jesus that blind Bartimaeus heard him coming and begin to cry out, Son of David, have mercy on me? What was it about these men that could sense Jesus even absent of being able to see him, not only as he passed by, but to such a high degree that they could hear him calling to them. Sight becomes such a unique picture in this passage. How is it that the Pharisees, Sadducees, and Levitical and religious leaders were unable to recognize him, but blind men could? The people who had dedicated their lives to studying and declaring, praying and believing the Messiah was coming, couldn't see him, but blind men and adulterers with alabaster boxes could. If this is the case, is it not true today that those who believe they do not need anything, need
always reject what comes due to the package in which it's delivered. The point being, in the same way, how many people have been writing books and making declarations and teachings and and studying, giving their life? I mentioned to you the other day that Perry Stone says that he spent 40,000 hours studying the end times. 40,000. I'm not going to say that's not possible. I haven't done the math on how old he is and how he worked it backwards, but I'll just say, cool. Maybe when you get into like, maybe if you get into spirit realm studying, it's like double that. It's like bonus points. But whatever, if that's the case. But the, the, the reality of it is, if within that, the kingdom coming to earth is around you and you're not participating in it, aren't you just like the religious leaders that stood next to Jesus and blind people and adulterers could see him and the people who had dedicated their lives to studying and to declaring and to praying and to worshiping and to looking for Jesus couldn't see him because of the package in his hand. They couldn't see him because he sat down with tax collectors. They couldn't see him because he hung out with adulteresses. They couldn't see him because he spent time with people that had been known as a rebel trying to overthrow the government. That's who Jesus hung out with. If that's the package that Jesus came in and they couldn't see him, how could these two blind men see him? And furthermore, why did Jesus show up on the the scene and they say, can any good thing come from Nazareth? We still struggle with this today. They come up, came up with a legalistic version of how these prophecies would work out, most of which include the fact that the Messiah belonged to them. Jesus couldn't be the Messiah to them because he spent too much time with people the Torah said were outcasts. So let's think about this. And without being too weird, let me just ask this very simple question. Were they really blind? suggesting in a physical sense. What I'm suggesting is, what does Jesus say blindness is? If you look at the last passage, I believe it's John chapter 28. Shoot, let's read that. Look at John chapter 9. Jesus, after he has healed the man that was blind from birth, this is the guy that Jesus spits in the mud and puts on his eyes and all that kind of stuff. John 9, 39, Jesus then replies to the Pharisees after they question this man, of course, because it was on the Sabbath, how dare he speak to somebody's sight on the Sabbath. Jesus says, I've come to judge those who think they see and make them blind. Now, Jesus says, I've come to judge people who think they can see and my judgment will make them blind. But what happens is, in the context of Jesus ministering, it's going to create blindness. Because of their inability to actually see, and because of their rejection of what true sight is, it will cause them to be blind. They think they see, but when Jesus is presented, much like when the children of Israel asked Moses to put a veil over his face because of the glory of God, they're going to say, I don't want to see that. And they will cause themselves to be blind because it doesn't look 
right. People are doing things that make them uncomfortable. When I, I, I watched a, um, uh, or listened to on a podcast a little bit of a sermon, this guy was doing a, a, a it, it, was, it was good teaching ish. Um, he was talking from First Corinthians about speaking in tongues, and he was talking about how that has no place in the church. And he said that because everything needs to be done decently in order. And he said because when God comes in the room, He never wants to make people uncomfortable. And and I, I genuinely I said this out loud as I was driving. I said, Have you ever been in a room when God comes? I mean, honestly, if you can say when God comes in the room, it never makes people uncomfortable. I have to really question if you've ever been in a room when God comes, because. It makes people uncomfortable. I'm not, I'm certainly not suggesting, it would be pointless for me to stand up here through this entire sermon and speak it in tongues. That would make no sense. This is what Paul was saying, by the way. But what he was not saying was in a church community environment when people are praying, they shouldn't speak in tongues because that causes confusion. What, what this guy was supposing was that any environment where God comes is going to seem orderly. The problem is where he's starting. Anytime your thesis starts from a man-made vision of what order looks like, God's going to always seem disorderly. I mean, if you're if you start eating steak at Ruth's Chris, it's going to drastically affect your version of what steak is supposed to taste like in every steak you eat. If you start eating steak at Steak and Shake, it's going to drastically impact how you view steak is supposed to taste. I love my steak on a Frisco nut will be your version. And so that's the truth. That's the reality that we think about when I agree that God does decently, everything decently in order. The problem is I have to understand his order and not mine. His version of order are things shooting around the throne, falling on their faces, people casting their crowns, crying out, holy, 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 angels coming and going. It is absolute chaos if you read what the Bible says is happening around the throne, yet it, yet what they're preaching is anywhere where the presence of God is, it's going to be orderly. I want that order. And if that order makes me uncomfortable, then that I'm just going to have to get over it. And so when you see what Jesus says, that's why it will make people who think they see blind. Because they think they're seeing, and they're seeing is something that's from a natural vantage point. So then he says, and for those who are blind, I will make them see. Some of the Pharisees were standing nearby and overheard these words. They interrupted Jesus, which always works out really well, and said, you mean to tell us that we're blind? Well, at least they picked up on his sarcasm. Like, they weren't totally dense. You know, at least they caught the fact that he's totally trolling them right in front of them. And he says to them, I love this. If you would acknowledge your blindness, then your sin would be removed. But now that you claim to see, your sin stays with you. I'll take that as a guess, that, that he, his answer to their question is yes. Uh, you, you mean to say that they're blind? And so that's the concept of blindness. And I go back to your reason is really blind. Let's think about this from a prophetic perspective. As soon as you, in a church today, postmodern church, if we were to say something like, we need to uh, get, we're going to have a special service, and we're going to talk about our church vision. Immediately, everybody is going to think, okay, there's going to be our five-year plan, 
This is going to be what our building growth is going to look like. This is going to be what we our expected attendance growth is going to be, what our income, our tithe and offering growth is going to be, what we're expecting to impact. We're going to cast a vision. The challenge with that is Jesus never cast a ministry vision for the disciples. But yet somehow his vision was so clear that his answer to them was, I only do what I see my father doing. That's the only vision casting service Jesus ever had. So how was they, even though they were blind, how was their vision um, so clear that they could follow him through town? The second thing we have to understand is that these guys broke some super major cardinal Jewish cultural laws and rules. So the Bible says that they followed Jesus all the way home to where he was staying, which if you read the passage, what was happening was he was he was hanging out at this house and he was um, they followed him out of the home of Matthew because that's where Jesus had been having his feast. And they follow him home and they walk into the house. Verse 28, they followed him right into the house where he was staying. Right? This was a major offense in Jewish culture. This was a major offense. You were never to go to a home uninvited. And you were absolutely never to, if you did happen to stop by uninvited, walk in. But because their vision was so clear, even in the midst of their physical blindness, they were not stopped by boundaries that were religious or cultural because they were following the aura that had created their vision. But they didn't give a rip about being culturally acceptable. I mean, let's just use this in, in our common life, right? Like, you don't even go walking into somebody's house. I, I, listen, I love everybody. You're welcome in my house anytime, but don't just come walking in my house in the middle of the day, right? I mean, I could be, I don't know, laying around in my shorts. You know, I haven't seen or you're heard what you may see if you walk in, right? Just don't do that. Some of y'all are laying around in your drawers. Some of y'all don't even know what drawers are. Right? We don't do that now. And so, I mean, honestly, like, you know what it's like if you're at your house, it's in the middle of the morning, like something's going on, and somebody, like, just shows up at your house and knocks on the door. And so you're, like, trying to quickly put your hair together and, like, put some clothes on the kids because they're all naked. And, you know, do whatever. That's what happened. And so much, 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 much more so was it offensive in that day to do that. And these guys walked in. Why? Because there was no boundary. I love the fact that there is a place that God has taken us where whatever the boundaries of chasing after him, whatever boundaries we've been told there are to chasing after him, we're going to follow him wherever he goes. And I don't care if that brings persecution. If Jesus is inside of a house, I'm going in. And I don't care. And it took two blind people who had a clear enough vision, even in their physical blindness, to follow Jesus into the house. And what I would want for us is the obvious question, maybe not the most important thing, but the most fundamental question. 
serve two blind people following you home would be noticeable, even if you weren't from Bethlehem. You know, how can you serve a God when there are two blind people fumbling their way through the city following you home? Why did he heal my son? I think because he wanted to see if they would break the bond. This brings us to prophetic perspective. So let's think about this. The Bible says if Israel could, if we could equate, if you will, uh, bear with me, but if you'll equate this vision these two blind people had, uh, or these two blind men had, this vision with prophetic understanding, with the ability to see, all of us at some point have asked for a clearer understanding. What does God want? What does God want in this situation? What does God want for my life? I think everybody, every human being on the face of the planet has regularly asked the question, what am I here for? What's the point of my existence? That is the most common or normal question. And so from that, I'd like to, I'd like to look at how this applies to prophetic perspective. The Bible says that God will not do anything without revealing it first to his friends that are prophetic or his friends' prophets. Amos says that. So God's not going to do anything without first revealing it to his friends that are prophetic. It then goes on to say in the New Testament that we know in part and we prophesy in part. Wait a minute. So God's not going to do anything without first telling his friends who are prophetic, yet he's only going to tell them a little bit of it? The danger is that we take a prophetic word and try to make it something whole. In doing that, we have been taught that a prophetic word or an insight erases the need for mystery within this trust-filled lifestyle. Let me say it in this way. Prophecy is always to remain pregnant with an element of mystery. Everything God instructs us to do is going to be in part so that it can remain in and of itself pregnant with an element of mystery that requires my trust. As soon as he tells me point one, two, three, four, five of exactly what he's going to do in in any given situation, it alleviates my need for him. It alleviates my need for trust. The whole point of prophecy is to find him in the midst of the lifestyle of trust. Many times he doesn't give us a word so that things become clearer. I'm going to say this again. Many times God will not give you a prophetic word so that things simply become clearer. He gives us a word to prove his involvement in scenarios that he wants to demonstrate his character in. So if the question becomes, when uh, and pick something, uh, let's say that I, I really want new haircut, and I'm saying, God, you know, I want you to show me exactly what haircut I'm supposed to have. I want the haircut that brings revival. I mean, I actually can do it if you just tell me which one it is. Like, I want the revival haircut. If you were to turn on TV, it would be like the, the typical, like, you know, yeah, anyway. I think if, if there, yeah, the HHC haircut brings revival here. Uh, we actually, Pastor Fabian came up with this thing that apparently Noah, Eli, and I have created some type of standard. We all have 
pretty much the same here to facial hair and for the most part glasses. So apparently there's a look to being an HAC man. Um, we're working on Doug. He's got to grow the beard first. But um, but that's that kind of thing is is very much um, this this thing where we say, okay, what am I supposed to do? And it could be anything. I mean, it, because we teach that we need to invite God into every part of our life, right? So job changes, car purchases, um, um, you know, any where our kids go to school. All of these things are things that if our kids should go to school, like, I mean, all of these things are very real situations that we're, we're supposed to invite him into. But the problem is oftentimes we don't walk this all the way through. So we start with you need to ask God and invite him to talk to you because he wants to speak to his friends, the prophets. But we don't follow it up with God speaks to his friends, the prophets in part. So then when God doesn't give you the loud, booming voice that walks you all the way through to everything you're going to encounter as you commit to whatever it is he speaks to you, then we get frustrated and feel like either we haven't heard him well or God's not speaking. Because the point of it is God's prophetic word in that way as we're prophetic beings is not to make an answer clearer. But he does speak to us bit by bit, part by part, so that we can recognize that he's interested and involved in every detail of the process of our life. And he's doing so just simply to give us a sign that his character is being made known to us as we walk with him in trust. It's more of an assurance that we get to walk with him than it is Here's where you're going, and here's how you're going to get there. Because as soon as he does that, I'm sorry, you don't need trust. The reality is, I don't need trust to get paid on Friday. I have a job. My employment is secure, and I've done my part, so I will get a paycheck. That requires no trust. Now, for me to come up with a sermon for Sunday, I need trust. Like, that, that requires more trust. For me to think that God is is gonna uh, gonna open the door for a new job that requires some trust. For me to think about anything that I don't have yet and that isn't yet there, and you tell me what develops more character: the thing you don't have yet or the thing you already have. So, what do you think He's more interested in His character being demonstrated to you in the thing you already have or the thing that you don't have yet that He wants to walk through with you piece by piece, part by part? Why? Because those that will walk with him in that prophetic lifestyle demonstrate friendship. I've always thought his friends, the prophets, meant that the closer I get to God, he's got this exclusive club of friends that he really talks to. And if he's not telling me something, then I've fallen out of friendship. What I think it is, is it's like that friendship that you have with somebody where you don't have to talk to them for six months at a time. And as soon as you talk to them, they find no time has elapsed. No time has happened between you two. And you just pick right up where you've left off. I'm not saying you don't talk to God for six months at a time. But what I'm saying is it's the type of friendship that he says this is going to be happening. And it may not be detail for detail for everything you need to do. But he's going to direct who you are and how you're to operate. Because his friends are those that walk with him and invite him into a lifestyle of faith. That's what it's about. This is not primarily to make these areas less abstract. Please hear me. 
we do not ask God to speak to us about what's supposed to be happening so that those areas become less abstract. It's just not that way. It is intended primarily to demonstrate to you that if you will continue to walk in ruthless trust, He will walk with you. Prophecy is the announcement that He is involved in every detail of the process, teaching you to walk by faith and not by sight. That's what the prophetic life process is all about. So many times He asks me to go pray for somebody or give Him a word, and He doesn't tell me what I'm going to be praying for or what the word is. So then I'm like, you know, across the room, and I get about a half a step away, and I start maybe, if I'm lucky at that point, giving him something to say. Half the time, I've got my hand on him before I know what I'm saying. Why? Because it's in the heart. Because he's inviting us to partner with him, uh, with him. He's inviting us to walk with him. And this is more about our character that's developed in trust than it is about our character that feels surely confident because we know it all. As soon as we know it all, we've lost mystery. And as soon as we've lost mystery, we've lost the divine glimpse that we've actually been invited into and invited to participate in. There's an element to understanding how to move prophetically into a place where we celebrate the peace that we have attained and don't stumble over what we're missing. I'm going to say that again, and if you don't get it, I'm going to get it. And I may just do the worm right here on the stage, because this is that cool to me. You really want to know what this is. There is an element to understanding how to move prophetically into a place where we celebrate the peace that we've attained and don't stumble over the pieces we're missing. How do you celebrate over the part you've heard and not get beat down over the parts you haven't So how does this play out? As we put things into place, we are piecing together, piece by piece, a new wineskin that has the capacity to hold new wine. So he provides part by part, and each of those things weave together. You're not anymore weaving together old and new. You're weaving together new piece and new part and new piece and new part. And then that thing, when assimilated and put together, actually becomes the new wineskin that can hold the new wine, which is ultimately what he's leading us into in the first place. But what has happened in the past is we think, oh no, God just gave you this one part, so then we try to stitch it up together with the other parts we already had, and then when we think that new wine's going to come, and it doesn't work out. Because it's supposed to be, notice he doesn't give you an entire new wineskin at the same time. It's this piece, and it's this piece, and it's this piece. Why? Because he knows if he gives us this piece, then the trust, it will not stick that together with what we already think is going on. Oftentimes, the old wineskin that we're trying to stitch the new wineskin piece together to is actually an old wineskin of how we think God could do something or how he's done it in the past. And he is so disinterested in that. We use, uh, excuse me, Jesus came to give us life and life more abundantly. We use the seed expression of what God intends to do and by thanksgiving take steps into the full expression of what he intends. We use the seed expression of the part that we've received 
and allow that to be something that leads us into the full expression of what he intends. So maybe at the moment it isn't life more abundant, but it may be life. Keeping in mind, what is his, his full intent is life and life more abundant. We get frustrated that we may not be experiencing life more abundant, and in so doing, and in so doing, we actually then look down on life. It may be the part that He's given me that is life. It may not be life more abundant, but it's life. And what we also then have to trust is that that life He's given me, even though it's not the full picture, even though I'm not where exactly where He's going to take me, even though I'm not completely healed or completely whole or completely functional in what He's called me to be, all of that stuff. What I have to understand is. I have more life now than I had before. And in that way, that becomes the seed that actually is sown back into to press me forward into life more abundant because that's always what he wants. When we give ourselves wholly to celebrate what he has done and the peace that he has given and the fact that if he begins a good work, he's faithful and just to complete it. So I then function in a seed-like fashion where I just have to be faithful with the part he's given, knowing it's his job to complete it. So technically speaking, what's my job in the midst of it? Give thanks for the part. What's his job? Life more abundant. My job is thanksgiving for part. His job is being faithful and just to complete every good work he's began. Because... If we neglect to celebrate the beginning, we risk actually canceling the good work that he intends to complete. Celebrate the good work that's done. And celebrate it when it's even just begun. Celebrate the part we have and say, God, thank you so much. You know what? This didn't work out. This was kind of a mess. This kind of fell apart. But you know what? I know that I'm better than I was. I know that you're working in me in this way. I'm hearing you clearer than I've heard you before. I've, I've seen this thing happen, and this thing happen, and this thing happen, and this thing happen. And as we say in that kind of thanksgiving, that is the rejoicing that becomes the seed because we know in part, and he gives us piece by piece by piece, knowing that as long as he's giving those pieces, he's not going to stop until the work is complete. Why? Because he's good and he's faithful. The other challenge we have in the midst of this is we really do put these boxes on God and say he's got to do it like this or in this time or in this fashion. One of my favorite quotes by a, a theologian named Blaise Pascal is, God created man in his image and then man returned the favor. God created man in the image of God and then man tried to return the favor. What does that mean? That means that so many times when we expect God to do something, we expect it to happen in the way we would think it should happen. It has to look like we want it to look and act like we want it to act and function like we want it to function. And so we then fall into this process where we start making God like us rather than us like God. And as soon as we start making God like us, we change how things are measured. Success means more and bigger rather than God's version, which means legacy and death. God never, ever, ever defines success by more or bigger. 
And so what happens is God creates us in his image and then we start trying to create him in ours and we start saying to God, babe, if you really have your hand on this ministry, it needs to be growing. We need to have more people here. We need to have more giving. We need to have a bigger this and more that and bigger this and more that. And I need to be traveling more and I need to be doing this. The reality of it is if we will slow down and just recognize that God is a minimalist with life. Is he's not worried about filling your spiritual houses with more lamps and more things to put on our mantle. He's worried about having somebody who will sit by the prophetic fireplace and stare into your heart. That's the God. The Bible says we look into his face and we'll become known as we are known. I'll close with this. There is this process that happens where when we start slowing down and being still, we stare into the mirror of who he is and how he sees us so that we might be changed. We'll talk about this probably in um, some of our Reckon Religion series um, when we're talking about hell and judgment. But there is a very real reality where judgment is something that is to be treasured and embraced by those who know what love is. Because in the midst of that, judgment is not, judgment is only scriptural. Judgment is only feared by those who've rejected love. Judgment is embraced by those who embrace love because in the midst of embracing that love, they know that his judgment only comes to restore it and not restore it. It's the resetting of the bone so that healing can really happen. It's never the condemnation. And oftentimes, several early church theologians teach that part of the judgment we're going to go through is staring into the mirror of his existence. Because the Bible says we look into his face and we know as we are known. So we stare into the mirror of his existence and we do so in a way that allows us to see who he's really called us to be and who we really are. And if we're constantly busy and moving and going and doing and functioning and all this stuff, we're never sitting still long enough to actually see the mirror. What happens is that in our modern culture, we have to be on the move. And this causes us to not slow down enough to stare into the eyes of one who's actually captured our attention. When we slow down, we can become the center of his attention center of his attention. I don't think we realize how often it happens we become isolated and peripheral to him. On the outside, skirts of his building. Because in the center of his attention, it will just probe, dissect, and reach deep into who you are. It's not uncomfortable. It's not unfun. But it's vital. There's a movie scene if anybody here has seen it, but there's a, uh, they made a new Karate Kid movie. I love Karate Kid. You guys are into it. Um, that's fun. Um, they made a new one um, where Jackie Chan plays uh, uh, Mr. Miyagi. Um, and um, I think it's uh, Will and Jada uh, Pinkett Smith's son. Is it son? Yeah, the Smith young man uh, is, um, uh, plays uh, Ralph Macchio's character. And there's a scene in the movie um, where he is um, being trained and, and um, uh, 
uh, Jackie Chan takes them and, and causes them to look at this pool of water, it's like a, it's a washing area, and he's looking into the water, and he says, ask you to look in there and see what he sees, and he says, I see my reflection, and Jackie Chan takes the water and stirs it like this, and he says, what do you see now, and he says, well, I can't see anything, it's blurry. The waters have to be still for you to see what's underneath. Jackie Chan next says to him, excuse me, after the, the boy says, uh, Jackie Chan, so you want me to do nothing? Jackie Chan's response is, there is a great difference between being still and acting. So what, what the invitation actually becomes is that we can stare into the mirror of who he is and see as he sees. Oftentimes he's going to ask us to stand there and look. And that moment, every act, every facade, every whatever that we can keep up as long as we have momentum and movement falls away. And this is why people, uh, psychology example, those that are much smarter than myself, would teach that who you are sitting alone in a room is your truth. That's a scary place to be. Why? Because that's your truth. You alone in a room with your own perception and your own thoughts. Is that the healthiest version of you? Or the least healthy version of you. And we have to understand that he's trying to take us into that being a healthier version of us. Because when that becomes a healthier version of us, then us with everybody else is going to be a better version of us. But much like the two blind men, it required a vision that was deeper than physical sight. And it requires us to now stand with Christian-themed boundaries with, I'm following Jesus, and I don't care where he goes. I'm going to use every chance that I have to follow Jesus, to follow the Lord. And in doing so, I'm going to, number one, allow this seeing in part of what he wants to be something that invigorates me and enlivens me. And then number two, I'm going to slow down, and I'm going to let every facade, I'm going to let... I mean, because believe me when I tell you, when I get alone in that place, I would much rather be on a plane on my way to France to, to preach to somebody. Why? That's a lot easier. I'd rather be standing up here than looking into that mirror any day. But the healthiest place I can be at that moment is staring into the mirror. Why? Because then I'm able to be known as I am known. And I can know him in that the place where we're refined. And believe me, everything inside of us is going to say that that is doing nothing. Being still and doing nothing are very different things. And we'll never be able to see clearly the reflection that we need to see until we take time to stop. Only in that, as Jesus said, he has come to give sight to those who've been blind. And if you refuse to see correctly, it'll cause those that think they can see to be blind. So, Father, we thank you for this. Uh, we thank you for this house. We thank you for this gift that you've given us to be together. And we, 
those that stand alongside of one another and, and that we recognize we don't have it figured out. We don't have the corner on the market. We don't have any, any special thing that makes us better. But what we do want to be, Father, is everything you want for us. We want to be those that not only are willing to hold on and to follow after you in, in a trust lifestyle that is abandoning of everything else. But we also, Father, want to be those people who in the midst of that lifestyle allow you to make us whole. And that you would allow us to see into those places well. Not, not just because you want to condemn us or judge us. But Father, in the midst of that, you want to restore. And we invite that restorative work. We ask you to do it now. We ask you to do that restoration in us now. It's either now or never. And Father, we welcome your judgment. We welcome your restoration. We welcome your cleansing now. Help us to do this well and welcome your kingdom well. And we thank you and we love you for this work. Because you're doing it in us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, everybody have a great night. We will see you on Thank you for listening to this message from Harvest House Church. For more information, find us online at harvesthouse.live.